0: And welcome to uh, RN Mentor Podcast. Uh, today, I have a very special guest with me. Uh, I've known her for a few years, and I had the pleasure of having her as a professor during my PhD program. Uh, and I'm very glad to introduce you to Dr. Eileen Frey Bowers. Uh, she's cur- currently an associate professor, nurse researcher, and associate provost for research administration at the University of San Diego. Dr. Freibauer's received her bachelor's degree from Loma Linda University School of Nursing, her master's degree from the University of Rochester School of Nursing, and her juris doctor from Whittier Law School. She received her PhD from UCLA School of Nursing with an emphasis in health services. She completed a federally funded uh, postdoctoral fellowship at UCLA in the care of vulnerable populations, research with a focus on child health policy. She has also completed several additional professional fellowships addressing health law regulations and policy. Dr. Fry Bowers is a certified pediatric nurse practitioner, a licensed attorney, and a veteran of Desert Shared Desert Storm, having served in the United States Navy uh, nurse Nurse Corps. She has authored multiple journal articles and book chapters in seminal uh, nursing and healthcare texts on advocacy, child health, and health policy. Dr. Fife Bowers is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing and as of November of 2020, uh, she will be the chair for the expert panel on child, adolescent, and family. She holds editorial board positions on the Journal of Pediatric Healthcare and Policy politics, and nursing practice. She was selected as a faculty policy fellow for the American Association of Colleges of Nursing and served two terms on health policy advisory council for the AACN. Welcome to the show, Dr. Frybowers.
1: It is my pleasure to join you today. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you uh whenever I read some of these bios, I just realize how much I haven't done in my career so uh, thank you for everything that you do uh you are you you really have been a mentor, and I'm so glad uh to have you on the show uh so much I've learned from you over the years uh, so I appreciate you being here
1: well i'm I'm just excited to be here um It's wonderful to see what you are doing now and how you are contributing to the Current and next generation of nurses by sharing this information. So I'm. I'm. The pleasure is all mine.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Um. So uh. I I just want to start. So you are a fellow veteran. Uh. Eh, but uh. You 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 are in the in the in the nurse corps. How did mm-hmm. you get started in nursing? And how did you uh, end up on the military side of the house? Uh, let's start there. How did you start in nursing? Let's start there.
1: Um. I actually. I'm not quite sure how I started in nursing. Truly, <laughs> I found my way to nursing. I um I'd always been very interested in science. Um I um when I was little, I lived in Ireland. They I used to get a comic book that called, it was called Twinkle, and it had a, a Nancy Nurse comic in the Twinkle comics. Um so I always was very interested in science and healthcare, but I. When I graduated from high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I went to college, um, really had had no idea. And I figured, you know, I can't this isn't going to last very long. You know, I can't live on my parents dime. You know, Um, I need to find a job and, you know. I was fortunate that there was a school of nursing, not very far from, Loma Linda University is not very far from the town that I grew up in Southern, in Southern California. And I went ahead and applied my, I was familiar with the uh, academic medical center that they have uh, due to some work that my dad had done there. And I, you know, I found my way and, um, you know, it's, it was, um, obviously it was a good step because it's uh, been a great career for me, um, over these, um, many decades now. Uh, I, so I, I, I graduated, uh, initially with a two year, this was back in the day when some universities offered an, an ADN. So I got my two year and, uh, started working, um, And, you know, immediately um, as a registered, actually, I got my interim permit and worked and then took the registered nursing exam. Uh, That was back in the day when they only offered it in February and July. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So that was quite a while ago. Uh, And I started working and I continued with my studies to complete my bachelor's degree. Um, I found my way to the intensive care unit. Um, I worked at Loma Linda university academic medical center. Uh, I worked on a unit called 8,100, which is to this day, I still think it's their surgical trauma ICU. Um, I worked the night shift and I spent about two years uh, working there. Uh, I, uh, it was at a time, you know, one of those ubiquitous nursing shortages. So I um, advanced pretty cl- quickly and became a night team leader, which was um, our terminology for a night charge nurse. Um, I always thought that they were a little bit crazy letting somebody like me, you know, <laughs> be in charge of a very busy, you know, surgical trauma, ICU. But I, I also had always been interested in the military. I grew up in a military town. There was a very large Air Force base where I grew up. I, uh, many of the, in my neighborhood, many of the children that I grew up with had parents that were in the air force. Um, so I, and then I had cousins that were in, you know, different parts of, of different branches of the military they served. So it wasn't a strange idea to look into service in the military. I, after about a year and a half, uh, working in the ICU at Loma Linda, I was sort of like, I'm kind of ready for something new. I didn't go away to college. I had lived at home while I was in my nursing, um, doing my nursing um, studies. And so I thought, you know, I'm ready for that adventure. And, um, you know, the military became that answer. I had a really um, great experience. You know, I connected with a recruiter uh, who was just uh, really a lot of fun. So she really made the experience um, enjoyable. She introduced me to another uh, woman who was my age, who kind of had a similar background. Um, She was actually from the San Diego area. She was, you know, joining um, the Navy Nurse Corps at the same time. So we ended up becoming really good friends. We drove across the country together to Officer Indoctrination School in Newport, Rhode Island. And, um, to this day, that woman and I are still friends and communicate, um, you know, uh, Facebook's a great thing for staying in touch. Um, uh, but you know, so it, um, it was again, one of those kind of things where it it was sort of, I'm just going to try this. And I, um, one of the other things that I wanted to do was move away from home. So I decided to go ahead and request um, being stationed on the East Coast. So I was stationed at Bethesda. Um, at the time, it was the National Naval Medical Center. Now, you know, Walter Reed and Bethesda are, are, are together in Bethesda. And, um, and, you know, true to form, the military took a surgical trauma ICU nurse and put me in a hematology oncology floor. <laughs> um, which, you know, and in, initially I was like, what the heck? You know, um, but I have to say that was probably one of the best experiences that I had as a nurse. Um, it really taught me um, a different type of nursing. It gave me a whole new set of skills um, that I use to this day. In fact, I was answering a question earlier today that harkens back to things that I learned working on a a cancer floor. That particular floor was co-run with the National Cancer Institute, so got a chance to be exposed to research protocols and things like that. So it was a very um, good experience. And... um, You know how they always say, you know, join the Navy, see the world. Well, long came, you know, 1990 and I got my chance. (laughs) to see the world. Um, I did get deployed in support of, um, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I was aboard the USNS Comfort, um, spent my time on the USNS Comfort, um, and, uh, got to know, um, you know, the Persian Gulf literally quite well, um, sitting out there, um, in the middle of it. Uh, and, um, had, you know, very interesting, um, experience through that whole process. And then when I came back, I, uh, ended up working back in the ICU at Bethesda and, um, you know, other things changed in my life um, around that time. And so I decided that I would um, leave my active duty um, role and pursue other opportunities. I, um, I got married and we moved and um, I ended up in Rochester, New York.
0: Oh, very nice. Um, so uh, from, a, from a military perspective, and I get this question all the time, it feels like, just because uh, we don't have that many people uh, um, that, that have, that have that military experience like we did, you know, maybe mm-hmm. a few years back. Um, uh, so how do you think the military, uh, uh, contributed to your growth as a nurse or as an individual overall? How is that experience, um, particularly different as a nurse compared to being on a civilian sector? Any difference?
1: Sure. I think one of the biggest differences is this idea that not only are you a member of the nurse corps, but you are a military officer. So you have responsibilities associated with being an officer that have nothing to do with being a nurse. And I think that's a very different experience from in the civilian sector. When I would go in every day, clock in and clock out, I'm on the unit, I'm expected to do a certain set of activities, caring for my patients, a certain knowledge set. Whereas, you know, in the military, even when I was on the ship, you know, there were days when, you know, you're essentially the person that's in charge of everything for the day, you know, and you have responsibilities that are associated with that. If there's an emergency, you are the person who everybody's going to come to and it doesn't have to be a medical emergency, it could be something else, you know, and you've got to problem solve. So. I think that that's the biggest difference. I, there were you know, other things that I would get called upon to do. I remember one year when I was at Bethesda, this is um, post um, the Gulf War. This is when I was back in the ICU. I was put in charge of running the United Way campaign. So it's like, Tracking down everybody, you know, all your, um, you know, all your colleagues and, you know, tracking them down and saying, hey, you know, have you filled out your stuff for the United Way campaign. You know, that wouldn't, a lot of things like that don't happen in the civilian sector. You might have responsibilities, committee responsibilities um, that are associated with the hospital functioning, but it's not, um, you know, these were other types of activities that were totally military related. So I think that, and that I think is a good thing because it allows you to develop other skill sets that we just don't um, really use or develop that much in nursing or have the opportunity to develop in nursing in, you know, in generally in sort of a more traditional civilian sector of nursing.
0: Yeah. It has like those uh, other skill sets. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of, uh, um, uh, civilian organizations kind of look for those additional skill sets when they hire a veteran. I think for that very purpose, it's not just the degree or the license, but they're, they're hoping for that extra skill set, like leadership and being able to manage other things. Cause, uh, they presume that that's kind of what, uh, that that experience is coming with you, hopefully.
1: Yeah. I would uh, definitely I think that's
0: agree. Yeah. I would agree also. Um, so, uh, um, so you left, you left the Navy. Uh, pursue other things. Obviously, you moved forward with uh, with higher education. Uh, how did you decide you're going to go? Uh, I mean, you were like surgical ICU, uh, oncology. How did you end up with pediatrics and become a nurse practitioner?
1: So that's a much more clear, intentional decision <laughs> on my part. Um, I realized, uh, so when I was at Bethesda, Uh, the ICU that I worked in was a general medical surgical ICU and Bethesda did not have a pediatric ICU. So children ended up, you know, in our, um, you know, dependent children that were dependents and and so forth um, ended up in our ICU at Bethesda. And as a result of having this unique population in what was ordinarily an adult ICU, a select cadre of us were, um, sort of put through a lot of pediatric intensive care training. And as I was doing that kind of training, I suddenly, you know, I had this epiphany like, wow, I really like this. I really enjoy um, this focus. And then of course, taking care of the children when, you know, they happen to be admitted, I really, you know, I would sort of wake up, you know, really excited to go to work. And, you know, um, it just, I, I, there was, I had a different sense about, about what I was doing. And along the same time, I remember, and I I think it was, I'm not exactly sure if it was like a nurse week magazine or it was just one of those kind of um, newsletters that you get in your mail kind of thing. I got one of those at this time and the profile that was covered in the magazine was about school nurses and nurse practitioners in upstate New York, in the Rochester area, and I was fascinated um, by that story, and it just sort of opened my eyes to—I had not really been exposed to the nurse practitioner role. I—I I knew very well the clinical nurse specialist role. I had worked with clinical nurse specialists at Loma Linda and, of course, in the Navy, but I didn't really know too many folks that were in the nurse practitioner role. I had a couple of other things that I read a book um, that was uh, written by an economist. Her name is Sylvia Ann Hewlett. It was a book called when the bow breaks and it talked a lot about, um, about our social policy in the United States and how we do or don't support um, children. And it was just this constellation of, of experiences and things that I was reading and being exposed to that really made me interested um, in pursuing greater education in the care of children. And um, we ended up, my husband and I ended up moving to upstate New York. And I was very lucky that the university, I, I was able to um, work at the University of Rochester and go to school there. And um, I was able to At the time, it was kind of a hybrid program. This was before the days where we really had separated. The NP and CNS roles specifically, so it was much more of an advanced practice program, and um, I did primary care as well as uh, you know as well as care in the hospital setting um, from a CNS type of perspective. But I got my master's degree in what was called um, care of children and families, and um, and that sort of set me on my path that I've pretty much hewed very closely to um, for the rest of my yeah you know. You know the rest of my career, I, you know, I call myself a child health advocate.
0: Yeah, uh, and I, I've definitely uh, like seen that in your in your work. Uh, just uh, connected with you through social media and uh, seeing uh, the information you put out as primary is primarily p's related. Uh, so I know that's where your advocacy work lies um so how did you um what did you do with that what did you how did you get involved in the advocacy role in addition to becoming like a nurse practitioner to be able to be in that role but how did you i know you did you do a lot of advocacy work around that population like if somebody was going to get started in the world of advocacy like what's what's the pathway where do they where do they start
1: sure so um i have a sort of a different pathway than I would recommend for most people. I don't think everybody (laughs) needs to go to law school, Um, but I would say that while we talk about patient advocacy and so forth in our nursing education, um, our nursing education doesn't necessarily prepare us to work in the public policy space. Um, You really do need to go and get additional education that focuses Um, specifically on those unique skill sets. Um, I happen to choose law, um, but there are other avenues. Uh, People can uh, go and get, you know, degrees in public policy. There's, you know, the MPP, a master's in public policy. Um, There are, in fact, I I used to be the director of one. Um, I was the director of a master's in public health in health policy program. So there are a number of other options um, in addition um, to law that people can take if they're interested in policy. But I do think it's important to recognize that um, there that is a unique expertise and skill set that requires much more than what we are able to provide during our nursing education at all levels, right? Because, I mean, even, you know, in a PhD program, while we try very much to Help our students gain skills so that they can be advocates at that higher level. It is hard, on top of everything else that you're learning, to to fit in some of the the information that you might need that's specific to some of these, um, the work that's required in the advocacy and public policy space.
0: Yeah. Um. So. uh, So how did you how did you decide that like the law route was for you? Like what what made what made you take that route?
1: So remember when I said I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I was <laughs> in college? So and part of the problem was I was interested in everything. And one of the things I was interested in back then was the law. Um, my father was an immigrant. And, um, you know, when people ask me about my role models, my parents were really my first role models when it comes to et- higher education, because I saw both of my parents be um, go through higher education as I was a child. So when I was an adolescent, I saw my mom go back to school, to college and get her college degree. Um, And when I was in elementary school, I saw my dad go to law school at night. He worked all day long and then went to law school at night. And so I had been exposed to legal education through watching my dad. And my dad happened to work... um, in the biomedical industry. So there was sort of this overlap of health and law throughout much of, you know, my, my, um, adolescence and beyond. So it was always something I was interested in. And, um, i was at a point in my career where I had been working, um, in a number of capacities. I'd worked at the bedside. I had worked as a nurse practitioner. I had worked as a CNS, um, in both inpatient and outpatient settings. And I think I was just, um, maybe feeling frustrated that I'm having the opportunity to work with, you know, children and families in a one-on-one basis, but there's so much more that needed to be done. There, you know, I really wanted to impact things at a much more upstream level so that some of the issues that I saw at the downstream one to one experience could be um, impacted, you know, maybe even ameliorated. So um, I decided to go to law school. Um, Unfortunately, where I was located, I had limited you know, where I was living and so forth. And I had two little kids at the time. I was kind of limited on, on how that worked out. But, um, I, I was very fortunate in that I had the opportunity to, um, get to know some fabulous, um, uh, legal professors, um, where I went to school. And I feel like I got, you know, just a wonderful, um, Education, and I got the opportunity to do a lot of um, hands-on um, child advocacy. I worked for a law firm that specialized in advocating for children and families, uh, and so that sort of set me on my path. But I also, at the same time, missed the healthcare environment. You know, I, I I'm, I, you know, to my core, I'm an ICU nurse, and. <laughs> That, you know, that's a hard thing to give up, right? And so I, I found myself, uh, you know, finding my way back into the healthcare environment and um, trying to sort of see how could I combine my legal knowledge and experience um, with my healthcare experience while still staying as close as possible to the patient population um, that I really enjoy caring for. And I... Um, through again, you know, um, a confluence of events, Um, a colleague of mine, one of the physicians that I had worked with in the emergency department, um, asked me if I wanted to come join the School of Medicine at um, Loma Linda and do some work with him. And I was smart enough to say yes. And that introduced me to the academic environment. And from then I um, was able to at certain points in time, um, have appointments in the School of Medicine, the School of Public Health, and the School of Nursing. And that really gave me the opportunity to um, explore a lot of ideas, um, a lot of opportunity to work um, with multidisciplinary teams, folks from medicine, public health, um, local government, um, education, and that really taught me the power that the combination of all those, you know, um, disciplines can what they can bring to bear together and that, you know, no one discipline has, you know, the single best answer that we really do all have unique perspectives and gifts that we can bring to the table. And I had the chance, as I mentioned before, I had the chance to uh, uh, be a director of the MPH and health policy program. I got to, you know, teach students who were in MBA programs and MPH programs, med students. Um, It was, I think, as much a educational experience for me as it was a professional career experience
0: yeah that's that's amazing i i i think we don't we don't see enough of that collaboration happen We see a lot of energy being spent in silos when you com- combine that energy you can actually make some serious movement towards uh whatever you're advocating for so that's 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 fantastic that you had you were able to work in that environment um but you eventually decided you you were going to go into uh research <laughs> at some point uh, um, how how did how did how did that kind of uh, it was, I know obviously it was sort of an addition to what you were already doing, but um, how did you decide you were going to go into that into that program?
1: I was in academia and I drank the Kool Aid. What can I say? <laughs> you know, it was kind of it was kind of one of those things where it's like, well, you know, if I'm going to use research to. Do advocacy work, I might as well understand how the research is conducted, what makes good research, what's bad research, you know, um, and by that time, I had decided that academia was probably a good place for me professionally, that it allowed me to um it allowed it gave me flexibility that allowed me to explore lots of different things and work with lots of different talented people and and that's what I enjoy. um so, I decided to, um, go back to school and, and get my PhD. And, um, I, you know, for those of your listeners who, um, live in Southern California, uh, they know what a challenge it is to hit the (laughs) California freeway system. I think I know every freeway in Southern California and what time of day, you know, it starts to stack up. Uh, you know, um, I've got very, um, you know, adept at, traveling the freeway system as I commuted um, into Los Angeles to, to go to my program at the, at UCLA. Um,
0: and uh, at UC and UCLA, you had a, you had an opportunity to do, a, uh, um, a, uh, you had a grant opportunity and mm-hmm. you did a fellowship mm-hmm. also. Correct. Um, um, what was, so that was in addition to your uh, PhD program? Was it part of your PhD program?
1: It was after my PhD program.
0: And how that, and how was that experience? How is that different than somebody who's in a PhD program?
1: So I completed my PhD program and then um, did the postdoc fellowship. And the postdoc fellowship was um, through the School of Nursing, but I negotiated with them the opportunity to work in one of the centers that UCLA um, has, which is called the Center for Healthier Children, Families, and Communities. Um, and that actually arose through um, and this, and I think this is one, this is like one message I want to put forward to your listeners and to anybody is never be afraid to ask for things, you know, never be afraid to put it out there. You know, the worst that can happen is somebody says no. Right. And can you live with that? If you can live (laughs) with it, then, you know, go ahead and ask the question and (laughs) uh, during, yeah, exactly. Um, You know, You really do have to be your own best advocate sometimes. And during my my coursework for my PhD program, um, one of the things that I really enjoyed at UCLA was the fact that we had to take courses outside of the School of Nursing. Again, you know, that emphasis on that multidisciplinary perspective. And one of the courses that I had really wanted to take was a child health policy course um, from a very um, well-known pediatrician researcher, Dr. Neil Halfen. And I emailed him about the course and because I knew it existed, but it wasn't in the catalog yet. And I was trying to, you know, schedule things and so forth. And it just wasn't going to work for me because I was still working, you know, full time and everything as I was going to school, but I stayed in touch with him, you know, and when the fellowship opportunity came up, I said, can I come be a fellow, you know, at your center? And so we were able to negotiate, um, my postdoc fellowship being sort of centered, um, in the, in the center. And it was really, um, a very exciting opportunity because this was sort of, um, shortly after the ACA was passed and there, you know, and, and little, if you recall, you know, for a period of time, um, parts of the ACA were being implemented. So, you know, it wasn't like all at once. It was, you know, at certain points in time, certain things would kick in. And so we were, you know, we were a year or two into that. And some of the things were starting to kick in that were starting to impact child health. And we don't really have a separate child health system in this country. We sort of fit children, these little square pegs into the round hole of the adult Um, health system. And so there were some things that we were noting that, you know, had, there was potential, um, just created those sort of unintended consequences, right? Um, Just that ripple effect, and you're not, it's not always foreseeable how the system is going to respond. So I had the chance to work on, at the time, what we called the Child Health System Transformation Initiative. And that um, brought together a number of uh, experts from around the country. I happened to be one of the only nurses. It was mostly public health and medicine. Um, I was going to ask, you know, yeah. like, how many
0: nurses would I have to this uh...
1: <laughs> Yeah, there was one other nurse um, who was involved in this project, um, and she was um, actually housed in a school of medicine in the East. Uh, but so there were a lot of things that we started to do in that response, um, in response to this, uh, you know, papers and and uh, pull together grant applications and a number of different things. Um, and that particular initiative has gone on and has um, morphed into other initiatives um, funded by the Kresge Foundation and wonderful things happening with the um, uh, Nemours Foundation and things like that, supporting this development of of thinking about how is it that we can implement upstream change to improve child health? And then how is it that we can address some of the challenges inherent in the existing healthcare system that don't meet the needs of children? So um, that was wonderfully eye-opening experience. I had the opportunity to travel to Washington DC on a regular basis, take part in conversations with policy leaders and really get a chance to understand, you know, not just the how a bill becomes a law kind of piece of policy, but all of the ways that policy is influenced through things at the regulatory level, um, through things like philanthropy and, um, you know, uh, the um agencies and the kinds of grant proposals that they request and all of those ways that we can influence policy so it was sort of like a second degree um in that um just you know being exposed to all of that and being involved in those conversations i I was really grateful for that opportunity
0: that's great um how important is nursing, the nursing voice in that environment of uh, advocacy, and specifically in policy? Because we don't, I, we definitely don't have enough nurses involved with the policy end of the world. Uh, how important is nursing, the nursing voice, given your experience that you've have the, you've had the opportunity to work with multidisciplinary teams, and you've, you know, spent some time in D.C. Uh, talking to policymakers. Um, how important is the nursing voice?
1: I think it's extremely important, right? We, you know, and, and again, it's setting dependent and perspective, and that perspective is dependent on the setting in which you work. Um, For nurses, we are the ones who are in most cases, most with the patient population, whether it be a full community, whether it be, you know, an individual patient and their family, I speaking from the pediatric perspective, uh, you know, if you're in the acute care setting, it is the nurse who is on that 12-hour shift three days in a row, four days in a row, you know, with that family and really experiencing the course of illness with that family. If you're the nurse out in the community, it is, you know, the nurse is a member of that community and experiencing what that community deals with in terms of access and, and other uh, factors that might be influencing their health outcomes. I think it's, a, it's you know, we all wear different glasses based on what our discipline is. And, you know, um, all those glasses need to come together to see the real picture. I don't know if um, if you are, uh, I, I love any kind of movies that have to do with history or, or sci-fi or anything like that. And um, I have boys. And so when my boys were younger, you know, national treasure, um, the, uh, yeah. that movie is, is one of was one of their favorites. Right. And so there's a scene in that movie where he uses Benjamin, uh, Franklin's glasses to read the map. And it's right, not right. until all of the colored lenses are stacked up together to where the the, the image becomes clear. Right. And I think that's the way working in a multidisciplinary team is. We all come with our colored glasses, and it's not until we bring all those visions together that we really can see all the different that we really can assess all the different possible solutions, um, that we can, you know, see the problem from different angles. And when you look at a problem from a different angle, then perhaps a new solution, you know, arises if you've only looked at it from one perspective. So I think, you know, nursing has a lens and that lens, you know, we need to share, um, our perspective uh, and be part of that collective solution. I don't think any one discipline um, has a single solution to improve, you know, um, the situation for our communities.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that just uh, not, not too long ago, I had one of my courses That was going through some modifications, and another college within the within the university uh, said, "Well, that's that's a course that we teach at our college." I'm like, "Well, yeah, but this is a nursing perspective version of it. (laughs) This is not, you know." They were, uh, and uh, we went back and forth quite a bit, and I had to, uh, I had to go back and make it more specific so it doesn't sound like their course. But I'm like, everything, our textbook, our perspective the content we're sharing, the journals that we use, everything is nursing perspective. Uh, so it's interesting. Um, so my my next question for you is going to be, how do we do a better job as to put those multidisciplinary teams together and not have these silos of uh, of people working? Like and, and another colleague and I are, are going to be putting a little program together again at the university where... Uh, our college, we're using different faculty to come and talk about similar topics or like a common health topic, but they're all, we're bringing people from different disciplines to talk about it. But how do we do a better job as to putting those teams together? Because it seems like we, I see it all the time that it's this silo work and people just don't want to get out of their silos.
1: I think what you're doing is exactly the right approach. Um, I think we need to make it, you know, the, the normal, um, you know, it's just like, if you, you want to make something, um, you want to help, you want people to do something healthy. You want to make it easy, right? It's the same thing. If we want people to work in teams, then we've got to start from the very beginning and make it easy. We need to make it part of the natural course of the educational process. So, you know, oftentimes and I might not be very popular for, you know, in some circles for saying this, but I think sometimes we get so focused on what um, our, you know, our nursing courses must have all this different content, you know, and, and it's very prescriptive and we get so focused on, on making sure that, you know, they're memorizing the signs and symptoms of CHF and COPD instead of learning how to think. Um mm-hmm. And I I really embrace that. Um, I think it's, you know, if I can give somebody the skills, uh, you know, if I can help them develop really strong critical thinking skills, then I don't have to worry if their memory fails them, right? Because they're going to have the ability to, okay, let's go back to you know, let's assess, let's, you know, and go back and, and figure it out because they've got really good critical thinking skills. And so I think it starts at the very beginning, it starts um, imparting the importance of the other courses that are not, you know, the nursing course number um, courses. One of the reasons I decided to make sort of a shift mid-career from an academic health sciences university to a liberal arts university is for that very reason. I wanted the opportunity to not just have a multidisciplinary team that was composed of my other healthcare providers, but I wanted to learn from sociologists and, you know, um, business people, you know, economists and um, ethicists and, you know, other individuals um, that the liberal arts environment provided. And it's been, I feel like it's been a wonderful experience for me. I've had an opportunity to collaborate on a number of things with my colleagues from the various um, schools at the university where I'm at now. And again, it, it makes me a better nurse. It makes me a better professor in the classroom. It helps me mentor others to see, you know, these broader perspectives. Um, Over the summer, um, the, so all of uh, the university put on a summer course. It was a one unit um, summer course. It was called Pandemic Times. And it, it was a five-week course, and in each week, there were f- about four faculty members who ran the course for that week. And um, my co- so myself and another nursing colleague joined colleagues from the College of Arts and Sciences, from the School of Peace Studies, from Business, and we all brought a unique and different perspective to the. the pandemic and so you had uh folks talking about you know the ethics of care but it was the perspective of somebody who studies ethics as a discipline as not bioethics per se but you know ethics as a discipline um uh, i presented on the impact of um of the pandemic on children Uh, one of my colleagues presented on sort of the epidemiology of of the pandemic. And, you know, and so the individuals or the students who participated in that course really got a true multidisciplinary perspective on what was happening, you know, with our current situation and COVID-19. I think that's how we change it. We help everybody see that the norm is to ask a sociologist about how they might handle this situation it is to ask an economist for their perspective on how we might handle this situation and it's to, to you know get that information collectively um and then sort of come up with you know the the right answers but i, I think that's a start
0: um that's great that's great i, I wish more uh more universities made those opportunities available to students because we see so many universities have like a certain track and that's the track you stay on and you don't get a lot of exposure outside of that track. So uh, it's great that, uh, that you were able to do that. Um, Going back to your pediatric expertise. um, So um, given, um, given where we are in the world with the pandemic, with uh, the current administration, everything that's going on uh, in the world of pediatrics, where do you think uh, if you had to pick like maybe your top thing to talk about or advocate for, from a pediatrics perspective, uh, what would be, where, where would that voice go to uh, sort of say?
1: Wow. Oh golly.
0: There's just so much. I know.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I would say, and, and actually I would say child poverty. Um, the oh. child poverty is um, such an incredible stain on our country. Um, the uh, About two years ago, um, maybe last year, I can't remember the publication date, but the National Academy of Medicine um, uh, released a report on child poverty and how... We might um, tackle it in this country, and how we might be able to reduce it in half um, in ten years. And they sent, and it's called the roadmap. Um, and they 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 explicitly set out a roadmap. And you know, it is within our ability to address this. We have, you know, we have the capability. We just need the political will. And unfortunately, um, children are never a top consideration at the political level during an election. You don't hear any conversations about how this, you know, um, how our children are doing in this country. Um, you may hear a push for opening schools, but it's it's not rooted in the belief that that's what's best for the children it's rooted in another belief so i i feel strongly that we need to do more for our children i mean it, it sounds trite but they are our future their future is only as strong as the foundation that we help them build in childhood if families are stressed Children are stressed. Right. Children are incredibly resilient, but that does not mean that they do not absorb the stress around them. That does not mean that they are not adversely affected by the the traumas that they are exposed to. It takes a toll, and poverty is by far and away one of the worst experiences, you know, because it it sets a child up for so many other. Types of, of bad outcomes. You know, a family that is under financial stress, you can have you know stress. The parents um, can have stress that can then be transmitted to the child. There are so many other, you know, housing instability, food and nutrition instability, you know insecurity. Um, d- the depending on you know how stable the housing is, then you have educational instability because if they're not able to maintain you know, housing, then the likelihood of them being able to maintain school attendance at the same school, you know, is on. Un- and so, there are just so many things that um, f- that um, that come from you know child poverty. That um, that if if we really wanted to do something to improve the well-being of children in this country, we would be serious about tackling the high rate of poverty in this nation among, in the pediatric population and the child population.
0: Yeah. And, and you're so, so right about that because I know uh, one of the first things when, when schools shut down, uh, my wife is a teacher. So one of the first things we talked about is, is food. I would like so many of these right. kids go to school and, you know, that's where they get two right. me- at least two meals out of their out of, out of the right. day. Uh, and, you know, things like long weekends or mm-hmm. weeks off from school or anything like that. Now that it's been months, I'm so glad to see so many different school districts that have kept their food um, components open. So parents can pick up food for the kids and stuff. But it's still uh, it's, it's really is a shame when you see. Uh, and And I've. I've been a little boisterous on this through social media, but like we see, we spend so much money in like professional sports or doing things like that to keep them open. Um, so, uh, but then that same money could have so easily helped so many families during the pandemic. And, um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, that's a, that may be a utopia. I, I'm not, <laughs> I may never get to see where the money, money goes. So, uh, but you're so right. I mean, childhood po- poverty, one of the schools, actually my wife taught at, we know there was uh, there was several um, uh, families that were homeless living out of the car, but their kids mm-hmm. uh, came, um kept coming to school on a regular basis. And uh, we had opportunities to help some families out uh, when we could. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it, it. really is a shame that we, we live in a country that prides itself on wealth and that what's best for the people but then we do have so many kids that are, that are hungry and live in, uh, live in poverty. So yeah, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to share with our listeners, uh, your, your wealth of information so we could keep going. So, uh, anything right. else you want to share with our, our listeners with your current work or, uh,
1: Um, I will say, you know, in looking back at my career, um, and hopefully continuing to look forward in my career, (laughs) um, you know, I know, you know, your, your podcast is, is called the RN Mentor Podcast. And I would tell people to, um, to definitely, you know, seek out mentors, be intentional about seeking out mentors and also be open to who your mentor can be. again, you know, it, for, for nurses, it doesn't always have to be a nurse. Right. And I think that it's important to look to people from other disciplines, um, you know, identify the kinds of skills that, you know, you want to acquire and see who has those and, and, you know, and, and look to them for guidance and, um, you know, talk to them about how it is that you might acquire those skills as well. I think that um, I also, I also think that it's not always going to be a professional superior, who can be a mentor, again, you know, depending on what what you're trying to achieve for yourself, you know, it could be somebody who is is a peer professionally, but they may be an expert in another area or something. So I think being very open to, um, to who you, you can seek out for, for support I, I think is, is really um, a good thing. As much as I've said, um, you know, I wasn't all that intentional early in my career, <laughs> um, I would say that being intentional – has its advantages, and I am much more intentional now, as I have gotten older, I, you know, if there's somebody I want to get to know, I figure out a way to get to know them. You know, I put myself in a situation where, where I I can interact. Um, I, if I go to a conference, I have goals to accomplish when I get to that conference, you know, I think that having those kinds of, of, plans for yourself, um, are very important. Uh, and it also helps you feel like you're, there are days when you might not feel like you're moving forward. And yet, if you, you can accomplish some of those things, it makes you feel like you're moving forward. (laughs) And I think we all need that, you know? So, so I would say that, um, to, to try to be, you know, intentional. Um, and I, and I said before, be fearless. You know, my, of course, this is a bad, a, a bad question for nurses, but my husband always says, he goes, Okay, whenever our kids would come home, you know, and so upset or crying, his first question is, is anybody dying and is anybody bleeding? Okay, it doesn't always work that well with nurses, right? <laughs> because we know But but really truly, in the grand scheme of things, you know, particularly when it comes to, you know, career and education and things like that, you know, if nobody's dying and nobody's bleeding. And, and, you know, and them saying no is not going to result in somebody dying or bleeding, then what? Why not? You know, ask, Right. ask, be an advocate for yourself. All you can do, you know, all they can do is say no. And then you say, Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate you, yeah. you know, considering my request, and you move on. And, the, and don't take it personally. They, they, you know, it could be a bad time for them. They may not have the resources, whatever. Um, but, but don't take it personally keep moving on and keep moving towards, um, your goals. I think is, is what, um, I think that's probably the best piece of advice that I could offer people.
0: That that's fantastic. I I do, I do actually live a little bit by that. Uh, but I, I also tell people like, uh, Go ahead and take that no, because, you know, you're going to and if you take that no, you're still going to be in the exact same spot you were before. Yep. So you can only gain from um, from asking. Right. Yep. Uh, so a great piece of advice. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your time with with us um, and uh, wish you the best of luck. Uh, I'm definitely going to be keeping in touch with you. Uh, I think you're you're an amazing individual and the work you're doing is fantastic. So thank you uh, thank for you being so on the show. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayip.com. That's www.aliartayip.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.